This is HSBC Global Viewpoint, your window into the thinking, trends and issues shaping global banking and markets. Join us as we hear from industry leaders and HSBC experts on the latest insights and opportunities for your business. A heads up to our listeners that this episode has been recorded remotely, therefore the sound quality may vary. Thank you for listening. You're listening to the Markets and Security Services Outlook, a podcast mini-series exploring the critical topics that will shape our industry in the next decade, including sustainability, digitalization, and emerging markets. Find out what's driving the global outlook for institutional investors and where the opportunities and challenges lie. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Hello, and you're all very welcome. My name is Paul Heffernan, and I lead the asset management sector in Europe for HSBC Security Services Business, and I have the pleasure of being your moderator today. We are absolutely delighted to have assembled an expert panel who are all both passionate about digital and passionate about ETFs. I'm first joined by Carmen Gonzalez Calatayud, who is head of ETF capability at HSBC's asset management business. Next, we have Joe Parkin, who is head of banks and digital channels at BlackRock. Next, we have Pacon Breton, who is Director of Investment Risk at Nutmeg, uh, one of the first and largest rover advisors in the UK. And finally, we have Steve Palmer, who needs no introduction into ETF circles and was recently named as one of the most influential people in the ETF ecosystem. Steve leads the ETF trading and sales desk in HSBC's Markets and Security Services Division. You're all very, very welcome. Diving straight into the topic, um, Pacom, opening up to you for a second, I know you've got some interesting stats on the, the size of the D2C market in the UK in particular. Could you share some insights into this, please? Yeah, sure, Paul. Um, I mean, in terms of size, the, the UK market is around 300 billion uh, at the end of 2020, um, and it has doubled since 2015. So it's really on a, on a rising trend uh, over the last over the last few years. Um, and some aspects, for example, for us at Nutmeg, where we are more involved, which is what you would see as robo-advisors, for example, it's at the moment around 3% of this total amount uh, in terms of AUM, but it's around 20% of the customers. And so this discrepancy is quite interesting, especially as uh, you have, on average, investors that are much younger than the average uh, D2C um, investors. And, and so the math is pretty easy. So a lot of customers that are not as rich as the older ones uh, using a digital uh, platform, a digital wealth manager like us, um, and this this part, this share is going to grow up in the in the future when this large number of customers are getting richer uh, or even are going to inherit the wealth of the older generation somehow. Um, some some nice stats there, Pacom, and, and like it's not D two C market is not a it's not a UK phenomenon. It's it's across geographies and across regions and. I'm drawn specifically to ETFs and, and some recent research in Germany that in, in 2020, um, there was over 4 billion euros allocated into online ETF saving plans, which was up 80% on 2019 figures. And if you look at the, the first quarter trend in 2021, that that growth is actually accelerating. Um, Joe, any insights to share in, in terms of Germany or any other markets and what's driving this growth? Yeah, I mean, I think I think um, you know we see the growth of digital wealth really across the world, right? I mean, it's it's um, you know, and I think it's a fantastic thing because I think for a long time wealth has been about the wealthy, 
Um, and I think where technology has got to, technology is the enabler of financial inclusion. And now we can deliver through technology wealth management services to help people um, get financially healthier. Um, I think when we look specifically in Europe, I think PACOM is absolutely right. The UK um, and Germany um, are leading the way in terms of Europe. In the UK, um, I think anything I'd add to, to what PACOM was saying was really like 2020 was a pretty big year. Um, and 2021 has continued to be, um, you know, there's, there's no momentum lost off the back of COVID. Um, and so if you think of, off the back of COVID-19, um, we estimate that 1 million new customers, um, you know, kind of became digital investment customers um, kind of in, in, in 2020. Um, and we also think assets are going to continue to grow, um, you know, by around 20% per year. So by the end of this year, we think assets in um, digital channels in the UK will be at 350 million. Um, 350 billion, sorry. <clears throat> in terms of Germany, Germany has, compared to the UK, which got 6.8 uh, million D2C users, Germany has about 9 million. Um, and, and I think the big differentiator with Germany is ETF savings plans have become kind of the norm there. Um, you know, the ETF and particularly monthly savings plans. Um, and so these have grown, uh, I think they grew 35% uh, in 2020. Um, but just extraordinary growth we're seeing, um, I think, both in the UK, um, you know, kind of and Germany. Um, and, you know, the, the COVID effect, which many people thought, you know, might, as we came out of the, um, as we came out of the COVID-19 crisis, might slow down, actually hasn't at all. And any other markets in, in Europe that we're seeing kind of catch up with the rates that we're seeing in Germany and, and the UK? Yeah, I think I think the whole thing is, is kind of evolving and changing. Um, you know, we're probably three years in now since MIFID. Um, you know, and I think MIFID, uh, you know, has been a, been a big catalyst. But I also think we're seeing the rise of fintechs, which, um, you know, kind of aren't necessarily geographically based. Um, you know, so whether it's the sort of commission-free trading apps, whether it's some of the robo-advisors who have managed to scale themselves across Europe. Um, you know, I think it's going to affect every single, um, you know, country. And, and firms that have either started in the UK or Germany or potentially in other ones um, actually um, you know, and now starting to think about other European countries, um, you know, so be that Italy, France, Spain, um, the, the Nordics is a fantastic place in terms of, um, you know, particularly the digitalization that goes on within the banks. Um, yeah, th thanks, Joe. And then moving the conversation into an, another region in Asia and maybe specifically China. Um, Carmen, if I go with you, I mean, I, I saw some interesting stats recently where the suggestion was uh, the investment from digital wealth platforms into investment products in China actually outstripped those of local banks, which is a, a first quarter in 2021. But that's a phenomenal statistic. Um, any insights you can share into the D2C channel in, in China? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that um, that we need to um, we almost need to take a step back when we talk about China, because um, especially when it comes to digital economy, when it comes to digital investment, they are at a different level, I would say, in, in terms of the numbers that we look at. And if you look at the share of um, a digital economy um, in during COVID-19 alone, the share of um, digital economy overall has gone up from 17% to 36%. That already tells you that um, the um, use of um, digital tools in general is much wider um, or has a much wider penetration in, in a country such as China than it does in Europe. And then if you 
next to it, you also have to put the other statistics as to how the demographic changes or how the change are happening and what this effect of having such a um, implementation of the digital economy is also having on the individuals who live in China. So you have um, 2 million high net worth individuals, you have 340 uh, people um, in the what we call the middle class. And um, for the um, high net worth individuals alone, at the moment, you have something like 10 trillion of assets that they can invest. And this is expected to grow over the next five years by 60% to almost 16 trillion. Um, same thing for the household um, households, they're expected to grow, their disposable income to a certain extent is expected to grow um, to 46 um, trillion by 2025. So it's only if you then put it next to investor behavior, traditionally Chinese investor has, has looked at property to put their money in, but increasingly the younger generations who accumulate their wealth much more through the digital economy, they also want to invest it via the digital economy. So what you, you almost um, are creating a perfect storm for, um, for massive growth. And, um, you know, if you look at firms such as Alibaba, and so they, their market share alone shows you that um, this is the way people, the younger generations in particular, are choosing to, to invest. And finally, the one thing, the one statistic that I thought was very interesting as well from HSBC research was around how, um, how investor behavior has changed. And again, this benefits the digital channels. You have um, 50%, in 2001, 50% of assets were in cash. This has dramatically changed. Last year in 2019, 52% of assets were in stocks and options. How are people gonna buy them? Through the digital channels. More and more, they, they're not gonna go to their bank to buy them. Thanks, Carmen. Some great numbers in there. And like anything in China, always phenomenal numbers <laughs> and scale. So thank you for that. Um, in, in terms of just moving the conversation a little bit, maybe Pat, I'm coming back to you for a second. Uh, the whole notion of client acquisition in through digital wealth channels, um, you know, the, the prize for successful D2C platforms is having scale in the clients. And I think you had a, a stat earlier on where D2C in the UK had what three percent of assets, but had almost twenty percent of the customer base. How, how does someone like Nutmeg compete in this space? Clearly, you were early adopters, but how, how do you compete to, to gain market share from a number of customers' perspective? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's interesting. I mean, first, as uh, as Carmen was mentioning, I mean, the, the, the period of the pandemic actually has, has, seen re has seen really a shift in terms of customers, even for us. Uh, for example, we went from something like uh, 95,000 customers to around 150 now over the 16 months of the, of the pandemic. So, um, at a time where we've seen the saving rate increasing massively in the UK, but as well in the rest of the world, we've seen it as well in the US and as well in Asia, um, a lot of people were facing their, themselves with much higher savings than before. And so they were wondering where to put their money. And actually, the, what's very interesting, what happened is um, people were using um, the, the Alibaba or the or the Amazon to uh, or the Deliveroo to get uh, to to get their things delivered during this pandemic, and they thought about doing the same for their investments. So, what's available online? Uh, I want to do to invest in the way I consume, basically, and so that's where uh, digital wealth managers are really relatively well placed uh, because going to the typical uh, local branch or having a co with an advisor seems to be a bit less uh, what they want to do. And so this has created really a place where uh, people use it in the same way they use it for the rest 
of their lives somehow. And, and so we've seen this phenomenal growth in terms of a number of customers, but as well assets that are coming into uh, our business and as well our competitors. I mean, we're not the only one to, uh, to gain a market share uh, somehow. And, and we can expect that this is going to stay. Um, I mean, people who've used uh, Amazon or have used online, um, buying online, are unlikely to go totally back to where the, how they were before. And I think here it's more, we see it as more or less the same. This shift is going to stay. Um, people are probably going to save more as well. Um, and this younger generation is going to be used. They want the same service from their investment manager than they're getting for uh, the rest of their uh, online uh, spending. And that's what they are getting uh, more and more. And uh, that's why we're trying to provide them um, actually. I guess, Paul, if I can just chime in, I think the other important point to make is that the likes of Nutmeg and these digital wealth managers can actually start, they can, they can use the ETF, bring it back to the, to the ETF. The ETF is the building block. So through the creation of an ETF, you, you have this uh, ability to specialize. Um, you have the Nutmeg specializing in the, in the management of, of the monies. You have HSBC on, on my desk, you know, specializing in the in the actual um, execution of those trades so and of course Carmen and her team are specializing in the creation of the building blocks and black blocks of this world being the same so it's that, that specialization which is again about technology so it's the use of technology the ETF itself as a wrapper is a piece of technology so all of these things combined allow for these fintech firms these digital wealth managers robo advisors to then start specializing in the way that we are seeing so again we're talking about the same thing. It's, again, we're talking about technology and how the ETF is the enabler. It's the building block that enables um, the digital wealth channels to exist. And I would add to that, um, Steve and Pakom, that um, what makes the ETF particularly um, um, suitable as a building block, it's also the transparency requirements that they have and um, all the data that is published. Um, you can see it ticking throughout the day. Um, a digital investor in particular is one that will want to see their portfolios ticking away during the day and so on through the platforms that um, um, through the digital platforms, they have that life on their screen. And um, this is sort of um, back to the points that we're all making about having control, about um, um, making your own decisions. Um, these tools enable you to do all of that. And this is the world we're starting to get used to more and more. And um, this is why we're all expecting that this digital implement um, uh, embracing of digital wealth is going to increase um, even with them, um, I would dare to say, not only the younger generations, but it's this power and this control that, um, yeah. that these tools give you. And um, as I say, with the ETF, because it has to, um, it, it takes away on the exchange, you have everything you need. Well, it's, it's precision, isn't it? You can be yes. precise about you can be yeah. precise about how you construct them, and we I think we'll go mm -hmm. on to talk about ESG. But then you can you can add on all these these ESG um, flavors. You can you can do all these things. Mm -hmm. But to your point, you know, at the end of every day, you know, I can log into my digital wealth manager and see exactly what my pension's worth. Right? That's yeah. that that access that precision is only mm -hmm. um, achievable through through these building blocks, which is part of the whole digital story. I think. I think they're the perfect bedfellows, right? If you think about uh, what ETFs have done, ETFs are a technology. They've democratized uh, investing, incredibly transparent um, and low cost. Um, and you think about what the digital wealth players, um, you know, have kind of done. It's exactly the same. They've democratized investing. Um, mm -hmm. I, 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 would, I would just say a couple of things, though. Um, you know, 
I think we've now got to a place where, um, you know, the digital wealth managers are getting smarter and smarter about how they engage customers. I think the, the first round of robos, you know, which Nutmeg was obviously a part of and survived through, um, you know, grown on to be what they want to be. There's, there's probably very few of them actually left. Um, you know, I think offering a um, sort of ETF portfolio and selling it like you did to everyone, um, you know, actually showed that kind of was that um, what people actually needed. And I think the firms now are building it, whether it's into the banking savings and investment kind of journey and ecosystem, or they're building it into everyday life, or they're making it seamless, or they're making it really specific about around the segmentation point. Um, so I think we've seen probably like two or three evolutions of the digital wealth market to where we are now. Um, you know, I probably think there's, there's a further iteration where actually it doesn't just become about digital wealth. It becomes about your, your personal financial hub, um, about your savings, about your investment, about your other asset classes, um, you know, about your insurance. So that actually, you know, rather than having Nutmeg and four or five other apps you might have, um, in order to man- manage your finances, it actually becomes kind of holistic. The, the only other thing I'd say is I think within the industry, we all feel that, like, and we all understand the power of ETFs, what it's offered Nutmeg to do and various other people managing money. But in the similar way to the car, um, you know, and I, I, I do like this, you know, kind of car analogy where ultimately, like, I'd say 80% of the population really have never seen the engine of their car. They know what it does. They know how it works. They know it's diesel <laughs> petrol. And they might know, or electric, um, and they've decided to buy an electric car, i.e. IE an ESG portfolio. Um, but actually, if you open up the engine, they wouldn't have any clue what the different parts are or anything like that. And I think investing is quite similar. Um, and I think the mistake we've made in the industry more broadly, actually, um, and I think the digital wealth guys are kind of correcting this, is you walk into a car showroom and there'll just be a load of engines. And you'd you know, 80% of the population, the petrol heads who are already kind of, you know, trading themselves, single stock, single bonds, whatever they may be, are going to love that. But actually 90% or 80% of the population are going to go, well, I want to see the colour, I want to see the sunroof, I want to see the radio. And I think that's where the digital channels can bring, you know, they can make it, you know, seamless on your on your iPad um, or iPhone, uh, which I just think is a fantastic innovation. Um, you know, and it's basically made it like every other industry, right? Every other industry, you have that experience. And the wealth management industry, you know, until really, um, you know, Pacon came along, like it, it, it didn't really have that experience. One point I would add is clearly uh, the will to educate people, but to do it in a really simple manner and with a jargon that is easily accessible, uh, even on some more uh, difficult concept has been always a core of what we do. And, and we get, uh, having so many customers as well, we get a lot of feedback of what interests them, what's, what's not interesting for them. And so we're constantly evolving our uh, learning curve and what we can uh, share in terms of um, the way we we developed the, the portfolios, the way we invest, and all the all the building blocks around it in order for people that if they really want to see the engine, they can see it, and we give a lot of opportunities to understand it in a transparent manner. And um, and that is pretty important. Um, and especially, I mean, in the clearly, for example, in the UK, when we had uh, some scandal like the Woodford case, where people are a bit unhappy about the lack of transparency that or they are getting directly or that they are seeing on the newspapers and they, they, they very, they're very keen on getting uh, fees and transparency combined in, uh, in, the, in their digital uh, investment experience. I think I would like to pick up on one of the points that Joe makes because I think that's also quite important in understanding the evolution of digital wealth and that um, um, investors or, or 
people are demanding more and more to see everything together, their insurance, their investments, their, you know, savings plan, whatever, whatever. And I think um, this is a bit where, um, where the banks come back in and um, where I think that um, this is what we're seeing a bit as the next, um, I don't know, we can talk about 2.0, 3.0, I don't know which number we are, <clears throat> but it's the next evolution in digital wealth. And I think you will have... Um, highly specialized, uh, not highly specialized, but uh, to a certain extent, um, um, more shops such as um, Nutmeg, which is very much specialized on the investment, but you will also, um, the banks have to catch up so that they can offer what Nutmeg offers for their overall portfolio. And I think this is um, the revolution in my view that is happening to a certain extent at the moment that the banks have to catch up and they, um, what Nutmeg has given or companies such as Nutmeg have given as an example, um, the big banks have to follow now and they have to apply it across the board, all the services that they offer, everything that's available to the client. And I think that's a positive evolution of the market of the financial services, but in general of the market in general. And just that's a very interesting point, Carmen. Um, and just touching on that for a second, I mean, um, certainly in Europe, perhaps less so the UK, um, banks have dominated distribution for a long time in terms of direct, and they, they own the customer. And clearly, from the, the research that you've shown, the newer customers are being gobbled up by, by digital channels. But can the, di- I'm going to call them the digital pretenders, can they really take on the mighty banks? Um, and what I mean by that, uh, you know, will banks, some will try to go it alone, but will some just gobble up the successful D2C platforms and then therefore just buy their client base? I mean, I can I can answer that. So I think there are I think there are several battlegrounds for um, you know the D 2 C investor, right? So it's it goes without saying the banks are definitely one. You know, it's a very much what we call a bank dominated distribution market when it comes to investments. Um, the UK is obviously some not so much. You know, the banks kind of removed themselves from a lot of what they were doing in terms of investment. Um, you know, off the back of the financial crisis and off the back of RDR. Um, you know, and it's almost been a golden age for advisors. Um, and it's created that advice gap. So I think I think I think that's one thing. The second place I think which is hotting up is is workplace. The workplace where obviously your pension is being paid. Um, you know, and I think we're starting to see um, let's just call it the, the sort of pentech providers coming in and offering a solution that sits across not just your pension but also your wealth management. Then I think there's the existing D2C platforms. Um, you know, so the very large platforms which have you know generally the hobbyist investor or DIY investor have captured. I think the fintechs, um, you know, are obviously another area. I think they're they're offering something, um, you know, kind of innovative. I think they're very flexible in terms of how they move. And I definitely think they'll have a say in, you know, kind of what's going on. And then the final place is the non-financial players. Um, You know, and I think for a long time, um, you know, we've seen non-financial players such as supermarkets, um, department stores, even football clubs, dabbling in financial services. Um, You know, so if you think about certain football clubs, they have over a million uh, people with 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 credit cards um, associated with them, um, and a huge client following globally, um, and so I think it's a combination of probably those different factors, plus the fact that the wealth managers are starting to think, you know, actually I probably need to offer something as well in the digital space, and it's becoming easier to do. I, I actually don't think there's one answer, and I think the, the second thing I'd say is that actually it's going to be about collaboration, and I think you know, like a lot of stuff that we've done. Um, you know, within BlackRock has, has been, um, you know, take scalable capitals capabilities, um, you know, and help our customer base through that, even though scalable capitals still have a, you know, a thriving business, um, you know, kind of in many parts of Germany. So, you know, they're going to be both of them. And I think there's, listen, it's such a large market. 
there's 30 trillion euros sitting in cash. Um, you know, that probably um, a large part of that doesn't necessarily need to be sitting in cash. There's so much to play for. There's so much opportunity um, that I think I, I, I actually don't think there's needs to be necessarily winners and losers. I just think the whole thing will push each other to a greater solution mm-hmm. and actually enable people to be financially happier and, you know, improve financial well-being across Europe. Some great points there, Joe. Thanks. It's very difficult to have a, a discussion on ETFs uh, or any investment product for that matter without mentioning ESG. Um, and certainly I was a, a big believer that a lot of the allocations into ESG um, ETFs and broader investment products is driven by the institutional channels with the D2C market and clearly the, the high prevalence of retail um, investors. How much is ESG a factor in their investment allocation decisions? Maybe pack on, open that up to you. Yeah, I mean, the uh, simple word is huge. Uh, that's uh, that's clearly the, the case. And, I mean, you see, for us, we launched our ESG uh, offer in 2018. And uh, and uh, there were two interesting challenges, even at the time. It's not that long ago, but even at the time, which was um, the first one was um, the size of the ETF markets that were available. And, um, and the second one was there was still an idea that ESG was a bit designed for stock picking. And so the, the two of those were a bit uh, some, uh, you know, some question Mark on the you know just three years ago, and what we've seen since since then is clearly the fact that the size of the ETFs in ESG has increased uh, quite dramatically, and um, it has followed as well a very very strong interest and increase in uh, in our own portfolio of ESG. And so trading those ETFs now uh, is not a challenge anymore because the really there has been s- such a flow of money into the space that basically it has become uh, really uh, broadly um, accepted and, and much easier to manage portfolio. Um, of, uh, of ESG ETFs. Um, and as well, we, we've seen that actually the, the passive allocation to ESG has been almost dominant since, uh, li- like we've seen in, in non-ESG uh, parts uh, somehow. I mean, we've seen recently, for example, in the UK, more than 50% of the flows are to passive, and it's the same in, in ESG. So uh, basically, those two challenges that existed are not really there anymore. And so it has been a very good success for us. And we see regarding our investors base, which is quite young, it's really top of their priorities. They want to invest, but they want to invest in an ESG on SRI compliant manner. And so most of them are actually interested to go that route uh, with, uh, with us on their, on their investment. 2020, clearly COVID, um, it helped the performance in ESG, right? Probably because of exposure to technology. Uh, I think, you know, a significant number of ESG strategies outperformed benchmarks. Uh, We haven't seen that level of outperformance um, in 2021, right? It's significantly fallen back. Yeah. Are are retail consumers happy to have underperformance in allocating to, to ESG? You, you would be surprised. Well, first, we are very low profile in terms of discussing the performance of ESG. And when we launched our product, we were saying we believe on average there will not be any difference. You're not going to be penalized by investing ESG, but there's no guarantee. And if you outperform for some periods, you might underperform in other periods. And you would be surprised. People don't choose ESG or SRI allocation based on performance expectation. They still expect to invest in better companies will end up with better returns but it's a hope it's not as they know it's not a guarantee at all and it's not the main criteria to invest in ESG and SRI people want to invest it because it's what they believe it's how they want to live their life and it's how they want to see their long-term investments or their or their pension investing in companies that are aligned with their thinking so performance is only I would say not such a big aspect 
uh, or smaller than what people could could think somehow. So yes, it has outperformed in 2020, a bit less in 2021, but it's not the main. It's not the main point really uh, over the over the long run. I agree. It's become a non-negotiable, and um, you know, I think um, you know people are thinking. You know, the pandemic's done this as well. People are thinking a lot more around their purpose um, and their own kind of sustainability in many ways. Um, you know, and I think it's it's rare that, um, you know, like, and I don't want to call it a trend because it's not, it's everything. Um, but it's rare that things um, in the short term, like, exceed our expectations, right? And I think again and again and again, the momentum behind sustainability, um, ESG investing, um, you know, thinking through purpose, um, you know, a lot of the things that happened uh, both in the UK and the US and across the globe um, in and around DNI over the course of 2020. Um, you know, that momentum is just massive. And I think, you know, like if, if when we went into the, the pandemic, technology and, and sustainability was probably like the top two conversations you'd have at, at boardroom level across the asset and wealth management industry. Um, you know, now it's definitely technology still there, but sustainability, ESG, DNI. Um, you know, is 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 the real critical thing that's happening at at a kind of um, you know within every organisation. What I would add from from my side um, is that we um, this has been a, an ongoing discussion sustainability and the, this trend clearly, as um, Joe and Parkham were saying, has been accelerated with the pandemic. We as providers, what we're finding ourselves. Um, um, sort of um, replicating for the client is also the evolution of the discussion. And initially, the discussion was very much about like, we don't want to invest in these companies. And then the um, it started going into, well, we also need to, um, there are some companies who are on the cusp, we need to help them improve, get better. Then it started being about particular themes. Um, it, it started being more about the climate as well. Um, let's take that into consideration. And I think that's where Steve was also mentioning earlier the, the precision of the ETFs, but also the the, the wide diversity and variety of, um, of aspects, um, investment themes that you can cover through the ETFs. This evolution as to how um, investors want to go into sustainability is fully reflected within the industry. And I think what you're going to see um, more and more, in my view, as um, especially as the um, as investors look into it, but also as more and more model portfolios are created around sustainability is that this precision lets them um, look exactly at what type of outcome you want to achieve means that we as providers will probably be launching more, more products around this and they will be more and more specific to cover one aspect. Uh, retrocessions is a key reason why distributors continue to prefer mutual funds versus ETFs and it's particularly pronounced, I think, Asia. Do we expect this to change anytime soon? I think that's the one million dollar question. I mean, um, the reality is that um, in Europe, in the US, um, the changes were triggered by regulation. And um, if we look at um, what the, you know, how the regulators are um, reacting in the markets, I would say that I expect that it's, um, you will also eventually see some form of regulatory change, which is going to accelerate um, sort of uh, a change as to how retrocessions are being, or how um, investors are being uh, charged for their investment, let's put it that way, and for investment advice. And that definitely then will benefit ETFs. 
Paul, I think we're just talking about moving from brokerage to advisory, which is kind of yeah. you know, where we used to be in the wealth management space across the globe to fee-based advice or discretionary. Um, you know, and fee-based advice is, I'm going to charge you an explicit fee kind of over the top of your investments and the retrocession no longer will be there. Discretionary, you know, which is kind of what the, a lot of the digital wealth managers do. So I just think it's a, it's, it, it will be a change in the business model that we're seeing, you know, initially in the US, then came to the UK, then going across Europe. Um, you know, and, and you know whether that happens in Asia, it might be regulatory led. But you know, a lot of the a lot of the firms operating um, in Asia are you know global um, in nature, and continuing to run two different business models across different countries is really difficult to do, especially when clients are quite fungible across these different regions. Um, so I think over time you'll end up in a situation where you know you kind of end up um, not necessarily using retrocessions, but the fee based advice or the discretionary model. Uh, will be the model that that seems to to win through. Historically, uh, D2C platforms have struggled with ETF trading on legacy IT architecture. With the increase in demand for ETFs and number of investors moving to digital wealth, how ready are D2C platforms to scale up operationally and with technology? And how much will this rely on outsourcing, uh, exactly using outsourced technology solutions? I uh, can get this one and Steve if you want to uh, to add something. I mean, for us, we, we I think we were we were the first one in Europe to offer a split ETF. So we're splitting the ETF for for clients so they can invest in a, in only one you know part of an ETF. We we do all our trading online. It's all uh, it's 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 all OTC as well, where the the spreads are very very tight. And so uh, yes, we started with a new technology. I mean that's that was good. Um, I can't really comment for others, but yes, on 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 our on on our side, the ability to execute at extremely low cost and very efficiently our portfolios of ETF is uh, is is absolutely uh, is absolutely fantastic, and we have absolutely no problem on that front. So uh, maybe others have some IT legacy, but on our side, uh, clearly we're not uh, we're not seeing that. Yeah, and I guess just to just to add, I think you know the the beauty of the ETF is it trades like a share. So you know the transparency that you can get through execution is strong, and the competition that you can have when when executing. One of the things that we're working on at HSBC actually is an algorithm as well. So we're constantly trying to innovate and create new ways um, to deliver best execution to our clients. So we think algo execution will hopefully be another step forward in terms of how clients can actually purchase and sell their ETS on exchange as well. So there's lots of things and work that we're doing, again, down to that specialization of the skill sets. Um, but yeah, there's lots of work that we're doing. But I think the best execution, the transparency you get through ETF executions is there. It's clear there's a significant opportunity across D2C channels. You know, there's universal accelerations across geographies, regions. Uh, and from listening to the panelists today, I think if you don't have a digital strategy when it comes to ETFs, you don't have a strategy. So um, I'd like to thank you, panelists, for all of your insights and, and thank you, listeners. Thank you. This has been the Markets and Securities Services Outlook, a podcast mini series produced especially for HSBC Global Viewpoint. To learn more about HSBC's Markets and Securities Services offerings, visit gbm.hsbc.com forward slash solutions forward slash securities dash services. Thank you for listening today. This has been HSBC Global Viewpoint, Banking and Markets. For more information about anything you heard in this podcast or to learn about HSBC's global services and offerings, please visit gbm.hsbc.com.